Texas talking. Oh, what was that that you said? Texas talking. Oh, gonna hoop upside your head. Texas talking. Tell me who can you trust when Texas guys are Texas talking. Hello and welcome to the Tribcast for the fourth week of April. I am reporter Reeve Hamilton. This is a very special Tribcast. We joined forces with the Slate Political Gab Fest for a live show at Schultz Garden in Austin, Texas. And it's a long one, so let's dive right in. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for the week of April 25th, 2014, the Can You Say President Rick Perry edition, the Gab Fest... Is live this week in a state where Obamacare is an epithet, barbecue is a noun, and the Second Amendment still matters, thank God. We're in front of a packed house at Schultz Garden in downtown Austin for our first Texas Gab Fest. Joining me on the Schultz Garden stage is Slate's chief political correspondent, John Dickerson, who once lived in Austin. Hello, John. Hello, David. And Slate senior ed- editor Emily Bazelon, who asked me be- right before we came on if Coach and Tammy Taylor were going to be in the crowd. <laughs> Hi, Emily. Hey, David. Are they, are they here? No, there's a game tonight, maybe. So we have a special and never-before-attempted podcast for you tonight, a 7.9 degree of difficulty. It's a joint production with our friends at the Texas Tribune and their great podcast, The Tribcast. Tonight we'll be going out to Tribcast listeners as a Tribcast to GabFest listeners to the GabFest. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to the other podcast. Me, John, and Emily will kick off the show talking about the Common Core, an issue that allows Tea Partiers and liberal big city parents to join forces. Why has this boring set of educational standards become a red-hot political subject? Then we'll hand the stage over to the TribCast folks and to our Emily Bazelon for a discussion of Wendy Davis and her gubernatorial campaign. And then we will join forces in the end, John and I and two Tribcasters, for a discussion of the political ambitions of Rick Perry and Ted Cruz and what will happen if Texas takes over Washington again. Would that be a good thing? And of course, <laughs> and of course we'll have cocktail chatter. Before we get started, I have an announcement that is very important to me. It may be exciting for you. This week, Slate has launched a brand new membership program. It's called Slate Plus. Slate Plus is not a paywall. I want to say that everything that is free on Slate now continues to be free. Instead, we're offering membership extras in exchange for a small fee, $5 a month or $50 a year. And we're doing it to try to deepen our connection to our listeners and our readers and to give you a stake in the journalism that we do and to make some money. So Slate Plus is really designed with podcast and GabFest listeners in mind. We are going to give all our Slate Plus listeners an extra GabFest segment every week, as well as extra segments to hang up and listen in our Culture GabFest. It's going to be exclusive to members. We're going to have ad-free versions of these shows. Uh, We're also going to tape every month a video live stream so you can see us in our studio as we record the show. You'll get major discounts on tickets to all Slate events, including our live podcasts. You'll get reserved seating and also first crack at our pre-show and post-show parties. Also, our eternal gratitude, because we really are excited about this. Also, eternal gratitude, yes. Um, And on Slate itself, you'll get single page for every article. You won't have to go through multiple pages anymore. There'll be an exclusive chat with Dear Prudence. And if you sign up today for our annual membership, you'll get a mug designed for us by Jonathan Adler. It's awesome. It's an awesome Slate mug. So you can try it free today if you go to slate.com slash gabfestplus. That's slate.com slash gabfestplus. And you'll also get to hear the extra bits at the end of this show, like our audience Q&A. So please try it free today. Slate Plus for the extra bits. <laughs> New York liberals and Tea Partiers have found something they can agree on, that the Common Core is evil. The Common Core is a set of educational standards that were developed over the past five years by a coalition of 45 states, Texas not among them, Um, It's not exactly a national curriculum, but it's not exactly not a national curriculum either. It lays out what we believe, or what the developers of this curriculum believe, American students need to know in K-12 education. The Common Core standards are to be incorporated into public school curricula and used as the basis of new standardized tests. Supporters of it say that these new, harder, consistent standards 
replacing a patchwork of, of state-by-state state standards that are usually lower will ensure that American students are better prepared for college. They will be able to compete better internationally. Opponents on the left say they're demoralizing kids since too many kids now are facing these horrible testing regimes. And opponents on the right, who are more interesting because they're always more crazy, say this is big government gone mad, that it's a forcing a single national standard down the throats of the states, and it's using federal funds as a force to nationalize public education. So, Emily or John, either one of you, why... Is this a test? Why has this... This is a test, a multiple choice test. Why has this issue become a new obsession for the Tea Party wing of, of the Republican Party? Well, first of all, it has this irresistible nickname, Obamacore, which is such a great slogan coming out of the mess of the launch of the healthcare.gov and however much better Obamacare is doing now, we can move on to Obamacore. And I think there must be something irresistible about bashing the idea of nationalization because these are not nationally imposed standards. It's true that the federal government is giving incentives to states to adopt them, but they are not forcing them on states and they were not designed by the federal government. So the idea that for the Tea Party, this is such a good rhetorical point seems to me to just say that you don't even have to have all the facts lined up. If you talk about nationalizing education, that's kind of good enough. Well, I think... So it seems to me that there was a fertile ground for people to be angry to start because people were angry with no child left behind. They, were, they didn't like those standards. They see in their schools day to day the overemphasis on testing, and they're not sure whether these are for the national tests or for the state tests or for the school's tests or whatever, but they see their kids having to basically be taught to the test. Now, that may have nothing to do, and in fact has nothing to do with Common Core. Which has but, tests but will replace tests, not add additional tests. Right, and it's it's a set of standards, not a set of like questions you have to answer. Now, the yes. argument is, yeah, but once you set the standards, then you have all of the questions that flow from that, and so essentially it is a test. But I guess my point was there is all of this existing angst and anger about these sort of stupid things being pushed onto kids, and it's also totally different from the experience any of us had, which is you look at these problems that they're doing, and their kid, your kids ask you to if, to help them, you know, with their homework. And it seems totally foreign and totally kind of only something a committee could uh, create. Really? Does that happen to you? That does not happen to you with my well, kids. Well, it happens with public No, they don't yeah, go your to kids public don't go, But also, if you look at the common core questions, if you look at those where the they're math? talking about talking the about theories the math? of math, right, okay. and the famous one that you all probably have seen is the simple uh, subtraction problem where they're asked to do it on a number line, where the students are asked to do it on a number line, and one of the parents writes in and says... You know, this is ridiculous. You just do the math and you get the answer in 10 seconds, and it doesn't need to be this long, laborious, kind of fuzzy thing. So, if you think that standards, wherever they're coming from, are a kind of fuzzying up of simple, clear facts, then you're irritated and you want to get, you want to punch someone in the nose who came up with this. And so, Common Core comes out, and that's the thing Wait, you can that, swing at. John, that does not, I mean, that's a very, that's an intellectually cogent attack on it. What I don't get is why why this has become such a hot political issue. You have the governor of Indiana pulled Indiana out of Common Core. Uh, I think Bobby Jindal is threatening to pull Louisiana out. There are a number of other states that are retreating. Lindsey Graham, who's a senator in South Carolina, is coming out against Common Core, even though this is something which was heavily endorsed by the Republican Republican governors very recently. Why is it that that, Jeb Bush, who's a leading presidential candidate, is big pro common core guy but why is it that that these just the kind of uh, irritation of a few quite paranoid people on the very far right of the of the movement but they're not they're, they don't have to because you're making my kid dumber you're t- I'm sending him to school and you're making him dumber and he's not going to have a job and he's going to be living in my basement for my whole life because of you and your fancy pinheaded theories and wait, stop but, uh, the messing pin, around wait, the, with no, my John, schools. John the key word there the key word there was pinheaded because it is an anti there's a kind of fundamental anti-intellectualism to it which is strange it's not frank I mean the weird thing in, in Indiana they pulled out of it and they said you know we don't want these national standards we need Hoosier standards you know developed by Hoosiers and I was like why do you need Hoosier standards developed by Hoosiers? Like, what is what is the stateness of it have to do with it at all? Well, well but, but even more along those same lines is you had the state boards of election say this was okay. 
So in other words, it's not the boards of education in Indiana and in all these other states say the Common Core standards are good. We want to we want to strive towards this. So it's not. My point is there is this existing angst about top down uh, efforts in education, lots of which Common Core never brushes up against, but they are there waiting to be sort of their weight throbbing and Common Core just has to touch them and there's a conflagration. That seems right to me. I wonder though if this also feels like a distraction to people who are disappointed with their schools that this is not going to really address the day-to-day problems and how are just imposing a new set of standards going to make teachers better or going to make kids better prepared. And there is an abstract quality to standards, right? You can see it as a distraction from the real issues that are Just to, to stay on the politics of it for a second. So with immigration, you have a, a set of policies around immigration that the vast majority of Americans, or the significant majority of Americans support, that the most Republicans until recently, or many Republicans until recently supported, that the Republican-leaning business establishment reported, supported, very similar to what you have with Common Core. Is it going to become as untouchable for the right as immigration has? Immigration, which, well, you, which, you, which you thought was going to kind of pass through has died, essentially, because there's a significant fraction of the GOP just will not deal with it. Is Common Core going to have the same impact and it's going to have the same political valence, or is it not going to? I don't think it will, because the Chamber of Commerce and business groups are really rallying to defend it. In but the they way they're defending immigration, immigration they did, They did, but I feel like there is an intensity about this, and also that immigration is easier to stay, has, you know, we're used to thinking of that perennially as this big issue, whereas we've never had an education debate that was really the, you know, top headline in some lasting way. Even No Child Left Behind didn't really rise to that. I just can't imagine that people, this is a little boring boring, right? I mean, just for well, that except reason, it's, it might... So immigration, you have the, the race component of immigration you don't have with this. And then secondly, there is a federal role in immigration. I mean, the borders have to be policed by... You know, there, there's a federal conversation to have about immigration. There are plenty of people who think there shouldn't be any federal conversation about education in the first place. So it's a hot-button issue, but doesn't have the same... You know, they're going to have to come up with some answer to immigration at the national level. They won't come up with an immigration, uh, with a common core answer at the national level. So it will be a hot button, but it won't be this kind of persistent issue of discussion in presidential primaries, say the Republican primaries, in the way that immigration will be. One, one theme with the common core discussions, which has been really interesting, and I'm, I'll be interested maybe to hear from some of the Texans later about this, is the standards are being developed, but they're also tests that are being developed to go along with the standards. So they're going to be new. I mean, I have a child in D.C. public school. She is just barraged with these stupid standardized tests. The idea that she's getting an extra one is appalling. The idea that she's getting one that will replace the bad ones is welcoming. So I don't know which way it's going to come out. One question I have about that is when they've done these tests in New York so far, a lot of kids did really badly. These co- the Common Core tests mean that kids show up with much lower test scores than they have before because the, the standards are harder, the tests are harder, and we see that children are just not as well prepared. Is America prepared to face the fact that its kids are, a significant fraction of its kids are just not ready? I mean, what we've seen up until now is that when scores go down in a state, the state lowers the standard and makes the test easier. Right. That's how it has worked. That's one way states have dealt with no child left behind. I think it could be harder to do that with the Common Core. That could be a virtue of its national element or its 45 state element that you can't just water it down, that there are other actors here, and that maybe it's more of an impetus to make the schools better. But, you know, if I was, I don't think if I was Secretary of Education, this would be the number one thing I would have done. It doesn't feel to me well, like Well, it isn't the number one is, thing he did. Because race to the top is that thing? Yeah, and ra- I mean, this Common Core happened outside of the, that's why calling it Obama Core is totally effective, but not really right. Not accurate. But still, I mean, now the administration is putting energy into defending it. If you were, you know, czar of education in the world in the United States, would you choose this to be where you put all of your energy? I'd put all my energy into recess. Um, (laughs) Well, yes, I think I would. I think I would. Because America's been lying to itself about how good its schools are. This brings a kind of coherence, a clarity, and rigor to all the schools across the country. And if you look at our competitors, the, the countries that do education well, they all have very hard, very clear national standards. And not just in reading and math, as we're doing, but they have it in... There is an ant on my microphone. Come on. 
Um, we don't the, have those in Washington. Like one of, it's one of the crazy ants that's going to come and eat the microphone. Um, these countries all have these very tough, rigorous standards, and we choose not to. And so I think you it's a think failing. having the standard is going to make teachers and students and curricula rise to the challenge of meeting the standards and actually but make the, the schooling richer. But the problem is that one of the things we've seen here in the anger is the implementation. So you have the standards, and then you let people figure out what the tests are that get you to those standards. And that's where a lot of the disappointment has been, is in in the implementation, people look at these questions and what's being taught, and they think, this is crazy. And I think even we would look at some of those bad examples and say, you know, actually, this is not getting anybody to that standard. It's just confusing the hell out of... Which I feel like we always have a fight over how the methodology of subtraction is like a favorite. I learned some weird way to subtract, and I remember my parents were horrified. Six minus four is not two in your house? No, no, it was like this. It was called additive subtraction. You carried (laughs) instead of borrowed. It was... I think it works, but my mother, I remember, was horrified. Just let's lay aside subtraction. The literature standards, to me, are more interesting. They're basically taking some of the weight off of fiction and putting it onto speeches and essays. So there's going to be more nonfiction. And they're also asking fewer questions about how do you relate to this material? What does it mean to you personally? Into where is the evidence? Yes, which seems to me to be such a good development. Both of those things I I appreciate and think could reach more people and be more useful skills to be teaching. Right, but the question is, yes, we would agree you need to know how to make an argument and and marshal evidence towards it because that not only teaches you how to make an argument, but it also, as a receiver of arguments, makes you know what to look for. So when your government or your drug company or your person selling you your Wheaties is saying this is doing this, you say, well, where's the evidence for it? But then when you try to create a curriculum around that, so we can agree on the top line goal, but then when you create a curriculum, that's where this is falling down. Well, and how you, do you know that? Why is that when true? Because in some cases, it's working well where they've tried to meet the standards with tests that actually get at those questions, and then in some cases, they're just really crappy. It's just the test. Wait, and but it's the, very but this is early. The state by state part of it, yeah. yes. Right. It's very, this very is the early. The herky jerkiness well, of implementation. All right. Last, last question on this. Going back to the political one. So, is it your sense that the rights objections to Obamacare are about Obama? Is this one of these issues which, if it wasn't President Obama, they, that they wouldn't care? They didn't like No Child Left Behind either. Obamacare is a, again, it's effective, but this gets at. I mean, local control of education is like, Pretty in the bones. Yeah, that's your your don't. I mean, don't mess with that. So that that's you don't have to get worked I up. I thought we didn't mess with Texas. Yeah. Um, the, uh, Definitely not. But can I just say one thing about subtraction? Oh no, uh, I can't believe <laughs> it. No, no, because it's the what's complicated here is do we have teachers who are good enough to teach? this new way, which in math is they're trying to teach them the concepts. And if anybody's ever read Richard Feynman's, uh, you must be, surely you must be joking, Mr. Feynman, the, the physicist, he has this great riff about how he's with all these PhD physicists and they're able to do these very complex equations. But then he puts the equation into just common language and they, they don't know what he's talking about. And he says, I'm talking about the thing you've just been doing this equation for. They have no sense of the internal workings of the equation they've been doing. And And that's what Common Core is trying to do, is teach you what's behind the math so that if you're faced with something that is not a simple equation, you've got a set of tools that will now, okay, I can adapt and figure out what this answer is. And that's really exciting, but how you teach that in a way that makes it exciting, that touches the students, and that deals with parents who like transactional teaching... That's a really complicated thing for any teacher to deal with. Right, and it's all about the show your work, show your thinking, which my kids always resist in math. What they like about math is that you don't have to show your work, actually. All right, now we're turning the the microphones over, three of the microphones over. John and I are going off, and we have our Texas Tribune's Reeve Hamilton, reporter for the Texas Tribune. Are you going to introduce Emily and Ross? Okay. And John and I I will be back shortly. So I'm Reeve Hamilton. I'm a reporter for the Texas Tribune, and I'm joined for this segment with by Ross Ramsey, the executive editor. Howdy. And Emily Ramshaw, the editor of the Tribune. Hi, everybody. And special guest, Emily Bazelon of Slate. Hey, I'm so glad to be here with you guys. Thank you. We're going to be talking about Wendy Davis, but if you'll just bear with us a little bit, uh, for listeners that are not here at Schultz Garden in Austin... 
who might not be as familiar with Wendy Davis, maybe she just played a little catch up. Explain this, who she is. Yeah. The woman in the pink tennis shoes. Exactly. All right, well, we're done. That's yeah. it. <laughs> the, um, so is state senator, Democrat from Fort Worth here in Texas in June 2013. She conducts a, how long was it? 11 that? hours. Filibuster of an omnibus abortion bill. For some full disclosure, it's a, it's a somewhat pro-Davis crowd. <laughs> Anybody can applaud for standing up for 11 hours. That's a hard thing to do. Then in October, she ends up announcing that she's running for governor, and now she is the Democratic nominee. She's challenging Greg Abbott, the sitting attorney general, who's the Republican, running for governor. Now, when she had her filibuster and sort of in the run-up to her announcement for governor... She became sort of a national darling. I mean, she was in Vogue. She was profiles in the New York Times. And if you look now, we've had some national polls, or at least one national poll has come out and shown that the numbers in Texas haven't really changed. She remains as far behind Greg Abbott as any generic Democrat would be behind a generic Republican. I'm not saying that either of them are generic. I'm just saying, you know, <laughs> the numbers don't seem to be going anywhere. Uh, we recently had last week, I think, uh, Wong Ket, which is a... Uh, feminist blog, their basic point was less whining, more fighting. From Davis herself. Yes. From Davis herself, right. Yeah, yeah, from Wendy Davis. Is that a fair take on the Davis campaign so far? Is there more or less that she should be doing, or is this just the way Texas is? You know, I, I just want to jump in and say quickly that I think she has actually effectively transitioned this narrative. You know, she the the Abbott campaign really came out swinging with these attacks on Wendy Davis's uh, narrative, her biography, and Davis's uh, sort of response to that was, frankly, not to really shrink from it, but to turn it around and say, basically, you're sexist. And from here on out, the conversation is going to be about you know the men you've associated with who've said things that are offensive to women or uh, the salaries of the people who work in your office that are not equal uh, when you're comparing men to women. I actually think she has really successfully driven the narrative in the last month after what felt like a pretty rocky start. But is that enough? I mean, she can't just be like, okay, who cares whether my daughter came to Harvard Law School with me? There has to be more to this, Well, I think that's the point, right? Is that you can make it all about, oh, my opponent is sexist, but at what point does that become... Ridiculous, right? Like this one kept piece was really getting after because she attacked Abbott because a consultant, a former consultant for Abbott who hadn't worked for him in years, had an assistant who had maybe like as a joke, he did it on April Fool's, but he registered a political action committee called Boats and Hose, which was named after a song from the 2008 Oscar. Nominated. Losing film <laughs> Step Brothers, which the lyrics are totally disgusting. And they also got they also got mad. She's been going after Abbott for campaigning with Ted Nugent because he had some dalliances with some very very young women in the seventies. And Bonkett's so point, it was serious like, guilt by association. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, can you really build a campaign on? Well, I think there's this problem if you're outside of Texas looking at a Texas Democrat and wondering why it doesn't catch fire in the same way that it does. Elsewhere, you know, the Republicans' criticism of the Wendy Davis campaign is, you know, what sells in the Upper West Side of New York doesn't necessarily sell in Texas. This is a Republican state right now, and she's running a Democratic campaign in a Texas that the people outside of Texas don't understand. And I think they don't understand how you throw a punch here. You don't understand how you do it. She's got the Greg Abbott campaign responding in a way that they didn't think they were going to have to be responding. They thought they were going to just take this and, and run with it. Wendy Davis has an environmental problem that you guys got to in the Obamacare, Obamacore stuff. That's a very, very unpopular president here. And even if you had evenly matched Democrats and Republicans, it's an environmental disadvantage for the Democrats. It's really tough. Is she really running in this election? I mean, imagine she can't win in this Texas. I think you you mentioned earlier the last gubernatorial Democratic candidate was at 42%. So if she can't win, is this about either setting herself up to run in a few years again as the state turns purple or registering a lot of new Democrats? voters for 2016 for Hillary, presumably. I mean, I think that's maybe Battleground Texas's approach, this, this uh, you know, basically pack funneled with a lot of national money that's come down here to really try to make Texas competitive uh, for Democrats. I think she's really running, and I think all you have to do is look at some of the things that she stands for to see. I mean, she's somebody who was a big business Democrat in Fort Worth, so relatively moderate, you know, on the political spectrum. A lot of people who were with her on the city council, which is not a partisan city council, thought she was a Republican. 
This is a candidate who uh, has said openly that she believes people should be able to carry handguns openly, which is generally speaking a Republican viewpoint in this state. This is not somebody who is so far left that, you know, she really sort of represents the pure Democratic Party ticket. This is somebody, I think, who has made some uh, concessions to be more middle of the road. But can she get away from the fact that what propelled her to national prominence and and statewide prominence is the issue of abortion, which, uh, you know, you can say that, oh, great, she's for open carry, but won't she always be viewed as a partisan candidate? That's a very polarizing issue. And even if she doesn't really talk about it as much these days on the stump, it's the filibuster. She still talks about that, and the filibuster is inevitably tied to abortion. Right. I wonder if she's sort of damned if she does, damned if she doesn't, in the sense that, so now she's backed away from abortion in a way that's disappointed me because the filibuster, even though it was useless because your omnibus bill passed, it was a real stand. And that bill is so restrictive and is now, you know, kind of the bellwether set of restrictions. The bill, I think that's the most likely in the states to go to the Supreme Court. So she's backed away and kind of deflated a lot of women who might have supported her, maybe secretly, even if, you know. Well, they're they're trying to change the narrative to this story of this wasn't about the fight, it's about the fighter. And she stood up for, this is their version of this, she stood up for you on this women's rights and abortion bill. She stood up on health care and abortion bill. She stood up on education. She stood up on this thing and this thing. And that's the case they're trying to build. So you sort of keep the filibuster on the stage, but maybe not center stage. I, right, I don't but know then how you, you do that. still want to talk about the fact of the filibuster, but not the actual reason behind it. And right. right? I mean, is that going to be something that gets in the way of her really galvanizing women? Well, interestingly, Greg Abbott, who uh, the Republican nominee, isn't really going after her openly about the filibuster as much as he has other issues. And to her credit. He is clearly taking her seriously, and they're attacking her with everything they've got. But it seems smart that Abbott wouldn't go after her on reproductive rights, because then he risks stepping on it in some way, right? Like a number of Republican candidates and office holders have done. And also he brings the fight to her kind of women's health territory, which would probably be bad for him. The question around women's health issues in general is, is there some subset of the population that does not vote right now or that is so sort of on the edge of the Republican Party that they could be swayed? Way to vote for Democrats by virtue of women's health issues. I don't really believe that that population exists. I mean, I think Texas is You don't so believe in swing voters in general. I don't right? believe in swing voters in general, and I particularly don't believe in it in Texas because I don't think that there's any evidence. What about all the unregistered voters in so, the Rio Grande Valley who've lost access to health care? Right, so, so let's closed. talk about that. those voters in the Rio Grande Valley. You don't Valley. believe in them either. Well, um, and let me tell you, yeah, those that exist, let me tell you what happened to those voters in the primary where Battleground Texas and Democrats have been working right. really hard to get folks to turn out to vote in the primary most of those folks didn't turn out to vote, and those who did turn out to vote elected or voted for a different Democrat, not even Wendy Davis. Right. So she had she lost. How long had he stood for? Yeah, right. I don't, <laughs> what color were his tennis shoes? All he all he stood for not was pink, signing yeah. up for it, signing his name up on the ballot. He never showed up again. Ray Madrigal won yeah. twenty eight counties. But that so but that does bring us to, and maybe we'll let you guys in on a little secret that the gubernatorial race might not be the race to watch, and I think they're counting on. Letitia Vandepute, who's a state senator running for lieutenant governor, to churn out a lot of those counties. So, but it can't be a good thing if that's the way the Democrats are playing this out, because it can't be better in the end to be lieutenant governor than governor, right? Right? <laughs> just, just wait for our B card. That's like, yeah. right. You know, the the candidates in the lieutenant governor's race, in some ways, are better candidates than the candidates in the governor's race on both sides. You know, Dan Patrick's probably a better and more engaging speaker than tell Greg Abbott. Who Dan is. Patrick is. Dan Patrick is. ESPN. Oh, that's right. This is ESPN. Uh, Dan Patrick is the state senator from Houston, a radio talk show host for years who is running against David Dewhurst in a runoff. I would be really surprised if he didn't win the runoff. And he's, then, he's the author of the second most important book you'll ever read, which is his interpretation of the Bible. Right. And Yeah, right. Very, very far right, very conservative. It refers to immigrants in Texas as the illegal invasion, and he's right. the front-running candidate. And why is he a better candidate than Abbott? He's, he's got been training more. for three hours every afternoon for 20 years on talk radio. He talks really, really, really well, and he's really, really engaging. He's good in a debate. A lot of you guys saw the, the Julian Castro-Dan Patrick debate. Julian Castro is the mayor of San Antonio um, on Univision here. and Maybe Hillary Clinton's running mate. We'll see. You know, he's good at this. Letitia Vandepute's an engaging speaker. She's a much warmer speaker than Wendy Davis is. She's more comfortable with the crowd. If people um, remember the filibuster, she's the woman that stood up and said... 
What did she say? She <laughs> said, what, what does it take to get a, for a woman to get her voice right. heard? There was all this noise at the end, and basically she said, what does it take for a, women, a woman to get her voice heard over her male colleagues? And that, that was sort of the line from the night that everybody repeated over and over again. So, so if she wins and Davis loses and gets over 42%, is that a victory for Democrats? Well, I mean, Democrats, Democrats are looking at two things. They want to they win these races, right? But they also want to see their numbers improve. So if they don't win these races, they've been looking at the same numbers for years. It's 41%, 42%, 43%. If they get a 47, that might be a win. And it might be a signal that, well, two years from now, we're building, this is how the Republicans did it. And I think the other thing that the, that the Democrats are looking at is when the Republicans turned the state in the 80s, they won with a rich guy at the top of the ballot, Bill Clements, and they started winning races at the bottom. They started winning Supreme Court races. This guy snuck in who had just changed parties, snuck into the Agriculture Commission named Rick Perry. Kay Bailey Hutchison snuck into the Treasury, you know, and all of a sudden they were on their way. I think the Democrats are looking at similar math. So so your first Democrat might be named Kinky Friedman. I think regardless, you know, regardless of what happens... You might have to explain that. No, I'm just going to leave that one hanging (laughs) out there. (laughs) Go Google it. I mean, I think regardless of what happens, Democrats nationally had decided before Wendy Davis that Texas was going to be a long-term investment. And I think they got a big gift with Wendy Davis because I don't think they were expecting they were going to have much of anybody. And then the abortion filibuster happened and suddenly they had this national star on their hands. And suddenly Leticia Vandepute, you know, rocketed into a position to run for lieutenant governor. Democrats got a gift out of those guys, and even if they all lose, it's, you know, it has helped them, I think, with turnout in a much bigger way than they expected. So if Davis loses, what happens to her next? Does it depend on whether she loses badly or not so badly? What happens with turnout? What happens to her? What happens to, what her? Happens to her? It depends on how she loses. It depends on, you know, are you, are you a piece of rubble at the end of this fight, or do people say, you know, I like the way she fought in that thing. It's not uncommon for people in presidential races you know, Mitt Romney, uh, George, you know. You've heard of people losing and then rising George H.W. Bush, people like that. But in, in Texas governor's races, they don't generally come back. They, you know, we had a couple of flips in the, in the 80s, but and in, the, in the 90s and in the 2000s, not so much. And the Texas Democratic Party has, has had dream candidates in their two decades in the woods. All she really has to do for victory, which is something no one's been able to do, is just move the needle, right? So if she can lose, but up their numbers Lose by better, 2%, right. Right. then that's big. And I mean, you asked if, if, uh, if Letitia Vanderpuy wins and Davis doesn't, is that a win for Democrats? I mean, I think if the Democrats can pick up a House seat, that's a win for Democrats. I mean, the, for them, the, the situation is pretty bleak here in Texas. Should we turn this over to our joint GabFest sure. Tribcast right. segment? All right. Thank we're gonna, you. We're going to get rid of some people and bring others on. Only the bleakest. Yeah. <laughs> we're live at Schultz Garden in Austin, Texas. And... And for this segment, John Dickerson and I are joined on stage by Emily Ramshaw and Reeve Hamilton of the Texas Tribune's Tribcast. Let's move on to our next topic. Somewhere not far from here, Rick Perry is sitting in a room writing over and over again, President Rick Perry, President Perry, President R. Perry. A little heart over the eye. Yeah, there's a heart over the eye. So... Could America be so lucky as to have not one but two candidates for president in the Republican primary in 2016, Ted Cruz and Rick Perry? Is that going to happen, Emily? Only if the Texas Tribune is very, very lucky. (laughs) Do you think that... Uh, yes. Uh, in fact, I think, it's, I think it is likely that we have both of those fellows, Rick Perry and Ted Cruz, running for president. I mean, they're both clearly thinking about it in a, a great deal. You know, Rick Perry has basically his crew in place. He's been all over the country nationally promoting the Texas miracle, which is another word for promoting Rick Perry. Um, and, you know, you also have Ted Cruz, who basically, like, cannot stay out of New Hampshire and Iowa and South Carolina. Clearly, both of these guys think it might be their chance. And so looking at, looking at both of them, Reeve, if you had to guess which one's going to be the stronger candidate in 2016 for president, who would you pick? I would tend to go with Perry because he has the benefit of low expectations now. <laughs> he, which is, no, I'm totally serious. You know, he, he comes in, uh, everyone sort of thinks he can't string a sentence together. He has some new glasses that make him look very intelligent and fashionable. <laughs> And he starts, not, not just sentences, but because he's been going on cable news every day since he lost the presidency, he's gotten some practice, which he didn't have before. He's been thinking about this now for years before. He didn't prepare really at all. And so he can come in and start doing paragraphs, and people will be blown away and think, maybe 
maybe we were wrong about this guy. And if you, like, if you watch that, the Mitt documentary that was on Netflix, you had that line where his son said, you know, we always go with just the next old guy in line, and that's you now, cut to Mitt Romney's the nominee. Rick Perry sort of fits the bill for the next old guy in line. I, don't, I mean, there are others that might also fit that bill, but he has the, the hair and the glasses to, to rock it. John, do you think of the, of the two of them as a national candidate, you think Perry's stronger than Cruz? He definitely does look the, look the part. I think um, there are a couple of early tests. One will be money, because what he's doing now is he's going around you know, advertising for Texas, but as Emily said, what There's he does... another fucking ad. So... It's funny that they all show we, up on your microphones. Of course, we, a huge failure is that we didn't, we didn't calculate it in David's dire fear of ants. Um, <laughs> so anyway, you know, he's going around promoting Texas, but he's also having meeting with lots of bundlers and people who can raise money for him. And they're the first hurdle to say hey, he can string sentences together, he's got it. And he raised great $18 million in that first burst when he first ran, so that's a benchmark. Can he raise that, that money again? Cruz has the opposite problem, or he, he has no infrastructure and doesn't have Perry's interest in building it in terms of raising money, but he has the grassroots, and he has, he's more popular in Texas now, right, than Perry he's by had, a long shot. He's almost like a ticket to winning your primary at this point, if oh, you yeah. say Cruz is my friend, and Cruz says yes, Also, you're in. Yeah, if you look at the polling numbers, you know, in side-by-sides between Perry and Cruz in Texas for who you'd like to see run for president, it's, you know, not even a comparison. So, but Cruz Cruz's, his, Cruz's big benefit is that he has the grassroots. The problem is that it's just unfathomable to think that Republicans would pick a freshman senator who's accomplished nothing, who's very good at speaking, to be president. <laughs> who wasn't born in this country. Who wasn't born in this country, yeah. It's just, I mean, I, it's just, you just, there is always a, Repu- there's a Republican bias for governors, and as there kind of should be, because, you know, governors have to make decisions. Governors have to balance and deal with budgets. They have to actually do things other than just give speeches. And that's why, you know, Perry's... But the problem there is he's got competition from Jeb Bush and Walker and, and also maybe Chris Christie. So, so John and I are in Washington, and in Washington, the main memory of Rick Perry is, of course, this disastrous 2012 campaign, and, the, and Ted Cruz, it's mostly like this guy is really full of himself, he likes to talk, and he just makes trouble. So what is it that you can tell a national audience about Perry and Cruz that they don't really get now? Like, we, why should we take... Rick Perry seriously. Let me start with why you should take Ted Cruz seriously, because there are two really important things to know about Ted Cruz. Uh, The first is that he is whip smart. I mean, scary smart. The guy never missteps. He never misspeaks. That's a pretty important trait when you're running for a seat where everybody accuses you of flip-flopping all the time. The other thing about the guy is on that flip-flopping point is that he says the exact same lines almost down to the word every single time he speaks. There is not an opportunity for that guy to flip-flop because he almost is reading from a script every time he speaks. So he's smart, scary smart. You know, Rick Perry... This I think, is going to be a nice contrast. Yeah, Rick Perry... <laughs> right. Here I go. Rick Perry is a humbled candidate, if he is indeed a candidate. I mean, I think what you saw that was really telling, he went on Jimmy Kimmel during South by Southwest. I don't know if anybody was in that audience. He walked into a, a totally a mean crowd, an angry crowd. People were booing him when he walked on stage. And he walked in there. He joked around with Jimmy Kimmel. He made a bunch of jokes. He was humbled. He was sort of coy. He had the cute glasses. And suddenly... The the whole audience was basically eating out of his hand and laughing, and he was the sort of moderate Republican candidate, not the super scary far-right candidate. I think there's an opportunity there. Right. You know, uh, Cruz would do much better on the SAT, but the, the chance that Cruz would have a better chance at winning over this audience, Rick Perry would have, do much better in a crowd in the retail politics part of it. And that's, you know, the problem is that his hurdle is not with the retail part. His hurdle for Republicans is the first debate performance. Do you think that Perry is a strong candidate? Do you think in that field that exists that he is, he's as strong as a Rubio or a Scott Walker or a Chris Christie or a Jeb Bush? If he is strong, he is strong because he's done it before. And he knows what it's like. And, and I mean, he, remember, he had, a, he had campaigned and been really successful in a very big, powerful state full of intelligent people, most of whom are listening. Um, you know, he had, he was a good politician. He wasn't just some guy who'd won in one race in a tiny little state. 
and he got destroyed by the process. And the process was kind of wacky last time, but it's not going to get any more intelligent this time. And if you've been through it once, you know why it's crazy. It's the reason he's going out and doing this kind of walking tour, getting his kind of legs under him for the actual campaign. If you've never done that before, the, the advantages of having done it before are really big, and that's a big advantage he has. So, Reeve, we had... Um America, Americans, you may remember that for eight years we had a Texas governor as president, George W. Bush. How would a Cruz or Perry presidency, should it happen, bring Texas to Washington differently than Bush did? Or would it be, would it be this, essentially the same thing as Bush was, or is it, are they radically different in how they would govern? You know, I, I would imagine that Cruz would certainly be markedly different because I think he has more confidence in himself, and, and Bush had more confidence in, in advisors and, and sort of, uh, you know, Perry, it's hard to tell because now he sort of sets up as, as the Bush-like figure in Texas, which is weird because he was sort of like the, oh, we're moving to the right. Now we have Perry instead of Bush, who was this moderate, nice, friendly, affable man. Uh, now Perry's in that role with Cruz is over here, the, sort of the hardliner. So I don't know. I mean, I know for this audience, you know, I think that you heard a lot of boos when Perry's name first came up, but I think for this audience, Perry would probably be a great president for them in that, if anything, his one of his biggest legacies here in Texas will be funneling money to Texas A&M and his friends and appointments to his friends. And he does that so masterfully and works that system sort of just to move resources around to the things he supports. Can, I think he would be great for Texas. Can you, one of you guys run us through the, uh, what's going to happen with this um, grand jury that's meeting and looking into his potential abusive, question. yeah. So, you, you I was just going to say, so... The backstory on this is that, the, as, as many of you here know, uh, the district attorney went to jail for a drunken driving arrest, uh, and the district attorney's office in Austin oversees something called the Public Integrity Unit, which happens to basically be the uh, branch that uh, in, involves sort of corruption investigations into state officials. So Rick Perry had uh, not so kindly asked this DA to step down. She declined, and in the end, he ended up vetoing funding for this public integrity unit because she wouldn't step down. So now a grand jury is investigating whether the governor violated any laws either before, during, or after this veto by trying to convince her very aggressively to uh, resign her seat. And so there's a grand jury has been convened uh, that will sort of see if this is political coercion, basically. Uh, I think it's a hard sell from a public perception standpoint as a real issue. You know, there's been some questions. Will this be his sort of bridge gate? Will it be like Chris Christie? We'll take him out. But I think, I mean, if you, like I was watching um, Steve Kornacki on MSNBC did like a, a bit about it. And the B-roll for the Chris Christie stuff is traffic. It's people sitting in traffic and you can instantly in your living room think, that is horrible that he inflicted that on people. The B-roll for this is the dash cam and the jail camera of the DA drunk out of her mind uh, with a spit mask on. Yes! Yeah. This is, every time this story's been told to me in the last three days I've been here, spit mask comes very prominently in the... I think spit mask is a real help to Perry in this case. Yeah, and I just think, I just think if that is the image you have in your head, it doesn't matter how uh, much of a jerk he was in, convince, uh, in trying to push her out, People see, here's the, here's the main the crime fighter in town with a spit mask on. This doesn't seem like a big right. issue. Why wouldn't the governor yeah. try to right. her? And in a primary context, any candidate who wants to make this, you know, well, there were grand jury. There was a grand jury impaneled governor. Googling uh, spit mask. Here. He, uh, uh, he would just say, he would just go back to the underlying crime. Right. Uh, you know what I love, by the way, is your last governor to be impeached, James Ferguson. 1914 gets impeached because he tries to zero out the budget for the University of Texas. Same thing. So then Ma Ferguson, his wife, gets the job after him. I mean, where would this happen where the wife of an impeached top official would then take that official's job as, like, governor or president? I mean, where would that happen? We're a family values state. (laughs) And in Ma's defense, she did get reelected. Yes, two terms. So I think... Hillary's got um, it's impeachment of your of your husband is not an impediment to high office. One last question about this, just because I don't know the answer: Do Perry and Cruz hate each other's guts, or do they like each other? I don't think that is a very warm and fuzzy relationship. No, although a ton of former Perry staffers have gone to work for Cruz, which could make things a little bit complicated if both of them run for president. 
Uh, Perry endorsed Cruz's opponent when he ran for Senate, the, who's the current lieutenant governor, David Dewhurst. There was a little bit, I mean, they've worked together for Dewhurst's career as Perry's career. They've worked together for a decade. So um, I don't know if you read too much into that, but I think, it's, I think they tolerate each other at the very least. They know how to work together with the people they ne- don't necessarily get along with super well. All right. Emily Ramshaw, Reeve Hamilton, thank you so much. Listen to the TripCast. We're going to go to cocktail chatter, and never has there been a more appropriate venue for cocktail chatter. I feel like we could just do keg stands for this cocktail chatter. John Dickerson. Okay. Uh, So my cocktail chatter is um, not about the first uh, governor of... um first female governor of Texas, uh, Ma Ferguson, but it's about something called uh, Ask Roulette, which is a great podcast. I don't know if anybody here is familiar with it, but you should become familiar with it. I was a guest on the podcast um, last weekend. The conceit of the podcast is that um, you get to ask a question of a stranger, and then, but in order to do that, you have to answer a question from a stranger. And it leads to all kinds of wonderful, random questions that uh, are very amusing, and it's just a lot of fun to listen to, and it was a lot of fun to be a part of. And also, I- I- as a part of it, um, Jody Avergan, who runs it with another guy who plays in this... He's the house band. There's just one of them. Um, his name is Eli Boland. They have this wonderful rapport, and it's just a funny show to listen to, even if the questions aren't amusing. But um, So what I thought I would do to the two of you is ask you the questions I asked the stranger. I will ask them both, and then one of you can grab them. So the first question is, what is your greatest meaningless competency. So what thing, so for me, I can shoot a tea sachet from across the kitchen into an empty coffee cup with, with enough consistency to make it amazing. So that's a meaningless, that's a meaningless competency. So what is your most meaningless high competency? And the second question is, if I had to impersonate you and I needed to know three things about you, that would allow me to actually impersonate you, not like I like tennis, but the specific way in which you like tennis that would allow me to impersonate you, what would those three things be? Oh, these are so hard. Hate of pandas. Hate of pandas is a good one for David, but high com- meaningless high competency. I think I have no competencies. <laughs> I will throw any object that's smaller than a softball closer to any target than anybody you know. But Excellent. not at the target? No, I mean, I'll hit, hit the, target. the target. I'll hit the target. Small, so smaller than a softball? Now, what, does this mean like mice or rats or is yeah. this inanimate? No, just like an inanimate object. I don't have anything here, but I would, like, I would happily do that right now. <laughs> what about you, Emily? Well, the only thing I can think of that's sort of... I mean, this is the nerdiest party trick in the world, but when I go out and I'm interviewing people and I have my laptop, especially when I interview kids, which I did a lot for my book, I can seem as if I'm typing really fast and listening to you. Actually, I'm making so many mistakes, but kids in particular are always really taken with that idea that you can just be like talking to them and typing away. So you can basically just bang on your keyboard really well. Yeah, exactly. I cannot throw anything at any target ever. I can't. I don't even know how to answer the other question. All right. Well, maybe in a future show you can uh, you can come back with what those three things are. Do you want physical attributes for that? Whatever the three things are that would allow me to impersonate you. That can be physical attributes or you know behavioral tics or I don't you know whatever. Anyway, all right. We should do them for each other next time. Emily, what is your chatter? I was going to chatter about a new study out on sex trafficking that has this really surprising finding. It's by a bunch of researchers at John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York. And they did the kind of research I don't know if anyone's ever really done, where they went out on the streets, they tried to really get to know the people doing this work, and they were especially interested in kids. They were interested in... um, in minors and in whether it was true that minors get recruited and exploited by pimps and that is their main entry into this work because that's been you know a really prevalent image and and a real fear and so it turns out after lots of in-depth work in New York City and also um, hanging out on the boardwalk in Atlantic City that most teenage prostitutes don't have pimps at all And that actually the longer they stay doing this work, the more control they're likely to take of their own circumstances. And it's this very confounding study. It's not... It's hard out here for a pimp. It's hard out here for a pimp. The pimps and the girls had these kind of... Would you blame Obama for the decline in pimps? 
they had this kind of mixed relationship where in some cases the girls were actually recruiting the pimps. They felt like they needed someone to play that role. And it, the power dynamic was much more complex and kind of shifting than our image of the violent, controlling pimp allowed for. But the kind of underbelly of the study was that 80% of the girls wanted to stop um, doing sex work but felt trapped. And they didn't feel trapped because they were being held down or, or even exploited by men, by pimps. It was because of homelessness and addiction and their customers. Those were the variables that were really um, tough for them to deal with. And so the lesson here, now that David is done joking, is just that it's really hard to figure out how to help these kids. The obvious, you know, treat them as victims and go prosecute the men who are exploiting them, that trope, which has gotten a lot of play with the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, doesn't seem like it's any kind of a complete answer to their predicament. All right, my chatter. So if you live in Washington, you are inflicted periodically with presidential motorcades, and the presidential motorcades have been growing and growing and growing and growing and growing. And growing. They're now about 50 cars long, they're ridiculous, and the you know you can't if the president is anywhere. If you ever been somewhere where the president is, they just the security is ridiculous. They'll shut down airports. Your flight will get held. They were all just um, here last week, like yeah. four different presidents. So so I am constantly on the lookout for sort of outrageous presidential security excess, and I found a great great example today, which is the presidential helicopter program. And the New York Times, or the Washington Post reported on today. They spent $3.2 billion to design a new presidential helicopter. There's nothing really wrong with the current presidential helicopter. They they have 20 of them, and they want to get 20 more new ones. They spent $3.2 billion to design it. They realized, like, we don't really like the design, so they just threw that money away. So they've now come back a couple of years later, and they're going to do it again, and their estimate is going to cost something on the order of $10 billion to build these 21 helicopters for the presidential fleet, which is about half a billion dollars per helicopter. They want helicopters that will go higher and faster and need less refueling and have missile defense just for the president. And I was thinking, I was like, this is ridiculous. This is absurd. So I started looking up prices of helicopters and realized, you know, you can get a really good Chinook helicopter for $42 million. It's a great helicopter. It's good enough for for U.S. Army use. It's It's a fantastic helicopter. And I thought, well, okay, why don't they get a... Chinook helicopter, but then they can gold plate it. Like, let's literally gold plate the Chinook helicopter. Would it be able to fly? How did you figure that out? Surface area? Yeah, I did a surface. I did a quick surface area calculation. I estimated like how thick the, the gold so, would have to be. I thought you can get a really good gold plated Chinook helicopter for only about hundred and ten million dollars. So I have just saved the government eight billion dollars and gotten us gold plated presidential helicopters. Slate Plus membership goals. Yes. I think you've we'll discovered it. your other successful, meaningless competency. <laughs> so the first time, the first time I came to Austin in 1989 with a friend, we took a tour of the Texas State Capitol, and they on the floor of the Texas State Capitol are the names of all these towns. And so I asked, "What are the names of all these towns?" And I said, "These towns represent victories and battle for Texas." And I thought, well, "That's interesting." And I saw there was the Alamo, and I said. Wasn't the Alamo defeat? And so the, the guy said, well, the, these names represent our victory or our hope for victory. <laughs> so with that in mind, the credits. To the people of Texas and all Americans in the world, fellow citizens and compatriots, I am besieged by a thousand or more of the Mexican under Santa Ana. I have sustained a continual bombardment and cannonade for 24 hours and have not lost a man. The enemy has demanded a surrender of discretion, Otherwise, the garrison are to be put to the sword if the fort is taken. I have answered all demand with a cannon shot, and our flag still waves proudly over the walls. I shall never surrender or retreat. Then I call on you in the name of liberty, of patriotism, and of everything dear to the American character to come to our show page, facebook.com slash gabfest, with all dispatch to find links to what we talked about today. Email us aid at gabfest at slate.com to follow us on Twitter immediately at at slategabfest, to search for Slate Political Gabfest in the iTunes store, to subscribe to the podcast, and to leave a comment for the glory of Texas and the Gabfest, or a rating while you're there. Please, in this case, not a lone star, five stars. The enemy is receiving reinforcements daily and will no doubt increase to three or 4,000 in four or five days. We are only a handful. 
Mike Volo, our producer, will die on this hallowed ground of Schultz Garden should honor require it. Andy Bowers, our executive producer, and Rebecca Cohen, our intern, blow our trumpets in California and Washington and cheer our progress and would give their lives, too, if they could be here. But if this call is neglected, John Dickerson, Emily Bazelon, and I, David Plotz, are determined to sustain ourselves as long as possible and die like soldiers who never forget what is due to our own honor and that of our country. Victory or death. So I just, again, want to urge everyone to please go to our URL, slate.com slash gabfest plus, and subscribe to Slate Plus, get all the benefits, and hear the extra segments. And today's extra segment is our Q&A, and we have our Texas Tribune colleagues here. We may not get to all your questions, just a warning. So be brief, and we'll get to more of them. Uh, I'm Megan Moore, and my question is really quick, actually, and surprisingly, it's for the Texas Tribune and not for GapFest, which I listen to y'all and not them, sorry. Um, But y'all talked about a campaign of Wendy Davis and uh, Greg Abbott, but I haven't seen either of them, and so I was wondering, where are they campaigning and what are they doing to actually campaign that y'all are talking about? Well, you can see them around the state, and and if you watch their websites, you can see where they're going to be. You can watch the Texas Tribune and see live streams and things of of their speeches and stuff. It'll accelerate as they get to September, October, November, but they're out there. So right now you have to be actively interested. Right. Well, and right now, right now, both of the campaigns are in what we, you know, we, we sometimes call the finance primary. Right now, they're about raising the money they're going to want to do all the advertising that they're going to do to you in October and November. Greg Abbott already has $30 million, clearly not enough. Wendy Davis has about $12 million, clearly not enough. So the siege is coming. There is a man in a panda mask who seems like he's about to ask us a question. My question is actually for Emily Bazelon. We're having a little trouble, unfortunately, hearing your question. We're sorry. Thank you. My question is for Emily Bazelon. Given the media's recent uptake of the stories of people living in states who are dying um, because they live in states that did not accept the Medicaid expansions, at any point, um, whereas had they lived in a state that had accepted, had accepted the Medicaid expansion, they would be able to uh, have received treatment to prevent their disease. At any point in the future, will they have standing in, court, in the court of law to be able to make the case that they're being discriminated against simply because of the state that they choose to live in? That's such a great idea, but I don't think it's going to work, legally speaking, because there is no right to be treated equally depending on what state you live in. We allow for lots of legal differences between states, but I do think that those stories are going to move the tide inexorably towards states quietly, gradually taking the Medicaid money. And the fact that they were allowed to decide not to is a real disservice that the Supreme Court did to um, did to people who live in those states by a quite lopsided vote of 7 to 2. Can't blame the conservatives on the court for that one. Thank you. And, and David, would, would you like to have a beer at some point? <laughs> I think he'd prefer to have a cuddle. Oh, some, <laughs> some bamboo. <laughs> Panda hug time. Hi, I'm a longtime listener, so I know that all of you have fine left brains, but I'd like to direct a question to your gutto meters. Are we stuck with Republicans controlling at least one of the houses of Congress until January of 2023? When will be the first time that after redistricting? Yeah. Yes. I mean, you Depends can imagine. The state house. Well, you can imagine. Okay, so say a Republican, the sort of standard pattern we're used to. So, to your question, a Republican wins the presidency in 2016. Then, as has been kind of the case normally uh, or historically, the country gets fed up with that president pretty quickly, and then takes it out on his Republican compatriots in the in the House and Senate. The problem is, in the House, it's hard to take it out on anybody. There aren't any districts anymore. I mean, they're such a small handful. So you could create that scenario, but then you'd have to look at the number of districts you'd need to flip, and there aren't, that, there aren't enough flippable districts probably by the time we'd get there, because, yeah. So, yeah, your, your original scenario is probably true. 
Thank you so much for coming to Texas and doing a live gab fest under a pecan, under a pecan tree for crying. Hey guys, I uh, I was wondering if you might discuss uh, counterfactual of uh, what the landscape would look like right now had Romney been elected instead of Obama. I'm I'm specifically curious as if someone like Romney, who is essentially a pretty moderate governor of Massachusetts might have been able to make some more headway in areas like immigration, tax reform, might have been able to get some of those people on the right on board. And then secondly, do you think there are any potential Republican candidates who might be able to get through that primary and then pivot and maybe push forward some progress, kind of like LBJ as being a conservative in in his early political career and then turning around and getting through some civil rights legislation? That is such a great counterfactual. I, I don't think he would have done immigration first, which he would have had to... You know, you, don't, you, you have a shorter and shorter period of time where you can actually do anything before it all falls to hell as a president now. He would have done taxes and spending first. So his chance on immigration, he probably wouldn't, he wouldn't have done that first. So then could he have gotten it through? What would it be? It would be tax reform? Yeah, but oof. Tax reform would be really, really, really hard because... The reason nobody ever gets specific about tax reform is when you get specific about tax reform, you lose all the supporters for it. And that wouldn't have changed whether it was Romney or Obama. I mean, that's so we saw that in the effort by Dave Camp, the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, to put forward an actual, a Republican, to put forward an actual tax reform bill that Mitt Romney probably would have liked mostly in most of its parts. And so then it's a question, did he want to start his presidency with a huge fight with his own party? John, I would say the, the weird thing about Romney is that he didn't really... There was nothing he really campaigned on. There were no big issues. Right, we don't he wasn't coming in with a crusade, so I don't, it's hard to see him coming in to have done anything. He right, didn't but campaign to do anything. He but would he, have, they would have tried. They would have not implemented Obamacare. They would have rolled that back. Yeah, that's that's a good point. Although, yeah, I guess that is that is what he said his first thing would be. So he would have had to keep with that promise, which would have been a, he would have launched his presidency with a huge, bloody, ugly fight in which after about 10 minutes, everybody would say, you're doing the same thing Obama did, which is not facing the real issue, which is the economy, but having a big, ugly fight over health care. But Putin would not have taken over the Crimea because Romney understood what a threat Russia was. We're going to just, sorry, we're going to do four more questions. I'm sorry to you folks further back. So as a Texas teacher... To my knowledge, the number one measure of student achievement is a number of years that a teacher spends in the classroom. Teaching should be a job that people want to have and a job that people want to keep. So the benefit to Common Core, to my knowledge, would be, or from my perspective, would be simplifying the process. Give me a set of standards. I will learn them. I will teach them well. I will do that for many years. Should I choose to relocate, I don't have to learn the system all over again. Do you see any traction to that with the Common Core being similar? I mean, that seems like a potential benefit. I'm not confident about the being able to relocate and feel like you won't have to learn a whole... Because every state will have its own curriculum. But, um, I mean, to me, the really important thing about the point you make is that if I was going to change one thing, it would be to make teaching the valued profession it should be based on the way we pay teachers and the way we value educators. And that's... You know, David brought up indirectly Amanda Ripley's book, um, which is called What? Smartest, Smartest Kids, Kids in the World. World. And, you know, the real lesson is that the countries that really make teaching a profession that people feel great about going in and staying in, they're the ones where kids are the best off. Yeah! Hi, longtime listener, first time live political gap fest attendee, question asker. Um, and uh, this question is for the, uh, the, our visitors. And um, when I moved to Austin a couple of years ago, um, I found that my perception of Austin um, didn't really match up with what I found here. Austin is great, don't get me wrong, but uh, it wasn't what I thought it would be. And I'm just curious to know what your perceptions are and uh, whether or not you think those match up with uh, the city that is Austin. Thanks. Well, it seems to be people come and listen to you talk. You drink a lot of beer. <laughs> You have a really good lunch. The weather's The weather's nice. beautiful, so and you don't better. do any work. So that seems pretty great to me. Torchies. So one of the big talking points of the last presidential campaign was the unemployment rate. 
and how important it was for it to come down for Obama to have a chance to be elected. Since it has come down at least a little bit, I was wondering if you thought that had anything to do with any of Obama's policies, or um, and if it does, why is he not playing up that up more? Because he hasn't had as much luck as Rick Perry in Texas. And I mean, I mean, I think it's that while the unemployment rate is down, it's not down a huge amount, and employment is not up. Right. So unemployment rate is down, but there are still fewer people. Well, not, I think not technically fewer, but relatively fewer people working. The, the most disheartening statistic in the world is labor force participation rates for adults, and it's dropped from, I think, about 68% to 64%. And that's terrible news. It's terrible for every, all of us in every possible way. And I think Obama knows that. And more to point, people feel that. And, yeah, and all the people, the only people who benefit are rich, the only people who are feeling richer are actual rich people. Everyone else is suffering. Thank you. That was a downer. Let's not end on that one. Uh, going back to the Common Core, it was touched on very briefly, but what happens to the race to the top with Common Core and kind of a second part to that? Uh, no Child Left Behind was just reauthorized by the House in 2013. Does no Common Core adopt a familiar name and become sexy all of a sudden and get rolled into No Child Left Behind? I don't think that would be the solution. No, uh, I think Race to the Top will, will stay because Race to the Top is kind of... Um, it allows a lot of, uh, enough flexibility. I know there are a lot of people who hate Race to the Top, too, but it still allows flexibility. You don't have to have... This is right, isn't it? You don't have to have your, your core, Common Core standards be the standards you choose to be part of Race to the Top. Right. You can still apply for Race to the Top money, it's, but if you have Common Core, that gives you some kind of automatic eligibility. But to the extent that there are some states have, or have chosen Common Core to be their standard, that taints Race to the Top. Yeah. Two... Very brief final things. One, on behalf of John and Emily, I just want to thank Reeve and Emily and Ross for being such great guests and collaborators on this and urge you to subscribe to the TribCast on iTunes if you haven't already and to read the Texas Tribune and become a member of the Texas Tribune and go to their festival. It's a great show, and as they showed here tonight. The second thing, this is going to be unbelievably shameless pandering. I'm about to give you my email address. It's david.plots at slate.com. David.plots at slate.com. Seriously, if you want to sign up for Slate Plus, and I know you do, email me and I will set you up with our best discount. So I'm you not joking. that you're trying to win a competition. No, I'm not, I'm not trying to win a competition uh-huh. in this case. I'm, I'm just trying to make it easy. That, that is not, no, in all seriousness, at this moment, I'm not trying to win a competition, although there is a competition. I just want you to email me. You can email, yes. All of it, not John. John will just lose it. Is it. But email me or Emily and we'll make it happen. Emily is emily.bazelon at slate.com. I am. I am. Um, thank you all so much for coming out tonight. We'll be back to Austin soon.